Welcome to Glam City. On Glam City, we speak to the hardworking people in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. My name is Chelsea Barnett and this week we have Dr Anna Lawrenson and Dr Kiara O'Reilly from the University of Sydney. Kiara is the Director of Museum and Heritage Studies at the University and Anna is a lecturer in the same. Anna and Kiara are here in the studio with me to talk about their book, The Rise of the Must See Exhibition, Blockbusters in Australian Museums and Galleries. The book was published by Rutledge uh, last year um, and it charts the rise of what we might call blockbuster exhibitions, must see museum exhibitions designed to bring in the crowds. So welcome, Anna and Kiara. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So your book covers the history of blockbuster exhibitions. Could you speak a little bit about what that actually means? What are these blockbuster exhibitions? What does the term, where does the term come from? The term itself is is a war term. It's to do with bombs, bombs that would literally bust out a whole block of an area, of a neighbourhood. And so it's a very, it's a kind of destructive term that came around after the Second World War in relation to primarily movies and and the film industry, blockbusters, which would just knock people away because they were so fabulous Mm. um, movies. And then it was adopted in the cultural sector really as a term in the 19... 60s, Yeah, and, and early 70s. And early 70s. And that, that's when it became really a common terminology. Um, but what we argue in the book is that this is just the name that we have for an exhibition format that has been around for a long time. So in the book, we go back and look at the history of Australian exhibitions and say there's lots of points of reference that we can identify right from the very early time of um, the beginnings of the colony that actually contain really obvious links to the blockbusters that we see now. Mm. So the term is relatively new. It's a 20th century term, but we argue that the format's been around for a long time. So you do start from the 1850s, as you say, colonial Australia, and you cover quite a long time span. You come through to the 21st century. You've just kind of talked about the links, I suppose, between the the kind of earlier blockbuster exhibitions and, and what's happening in a more modern context. But do... Do they actually look exactly the same? Do these exhibitions look the same or do they change over time? um, When we were doing the research, one of the things that we found really exciting and and we were really delighted to see the similarities and the continuity in actual fact. So when we were looking at the Sydney exhibition, um, the 1879 World Fair that happened down in the Botanic Gardens, um, the, the thing that's so important to think about is that that was marketed to audiences in the same vein with that kind of idea of drawing crowds to Sydney was really important in inventing Sydney as a a destination. Um, It drew crowds internationally and when you look at the the kind of collateral that's produced for that event and the the programming that happens around that event, there is things like um, multiple cafes, there were um, theme days, there was reduced ticketing, there was, um, you know, special events where you'd have someone talking about what was on display. So they're very much the sorts of things that we now expect in the programs that are offered by our cultural institutions today. Um, And I think that that was the thread that really allows us to see that Australia, because of its geographical isolation and because of its history, has been, um, you know, very much 
involved with the development of these large-scale cultural events where we bring in material from outside and show it to local audiences. It's been really fascinating. You know, we often look at blockbusters in this via this contemporary lens and think of them as something which is just new and which is being pushed primarily by a an economic agenda and not to say that that's not the case um, but that there's actually this much longer history in Australia which is driven both by the institutions and also by the by the desire of audiences to actually turn out and see these things. Speaking to, I suppose, the de- desires of both the institutions and the audiences, what are the motivations, I suppose, behind an institution putting on a blockbuster exhibition? Um, if there's a desire on both the institution's part and the part of the audience to turn up, what are they hoping to achieve, I suppose? It's a really good question. Um, and they're, they're trying to achieve a number of goals. I don't think there's a, there's one goal in, in, in only. Um, audience, drawing audience is really important, but you cannot guarantee that a show will be a blockbuster, okay? Even if it's been a blockbuster somewhere else, it's not necessarily going to be in your venue, in your home. Um, so I think that there are a number of things that institutions gain from them. There is actually um, staff development and staff training. There's a wonderful cultural exchange that happens between institutions where you have staff coming from, um, say, the VNA, coming to Australia, where there's a sharing of knowledge. It drives international standards across cultural institutions mm-hmm. because we can't have that exchange without the international standards yeah, sure. of preservation. And that, that was, you know, when we were tracing this long history, one of the things that really became very apparent was that it was a mix of infrastructure we're bringing up Australian institutions to meet international standards so you know the when the Art Gallery of South Australia gets in air conditioning um, that actually is a, a sort of a landmark event um, you know that uh, even electric lighting mm. is a landmark event for many of our cultural institutions and, and comes really quite late to the picture. Mm. Um, but I think so there's that the infrastructure, which is really important. There's the cultural exchange that's very important for institutions. And there's also that desire to bring... Because we, we were looking at shows that were brought in primarily is, is our focus. And there is that sense that Australian collections have gaps and that this was a wonderful way to address that. And we found that even in the 1950s or even in earlier examples, like something like The Light of the World when it tours Australia at the um, 1907, those sort of first decades, um, that they're very important. It's that idea of cultural connection, um, positioning Australia in that global exchange and bringing those collections. You know, Betty Churchill was uh, phenomenal at that with the idea that the blockbuster is a format to bring in material that Australians don't have an opportunity to see normally yeah, sure. and to offer a context to our collections. So her Rubens show was based around their Rubens. Ah, um, okay. You know, the Pizarro show at the Art Gallery mm. was based around, we have this wonderful Pizarro, let's put it in an international context, let's yeah, bring in other yeah. works, let's, let's really unpack this artist and their work for Australian audiences. So I think there's there's a lot going on. Have I missed anything, Anna? Well, I was just thinking, in terms of audience, um, of course the desire is to get a large crowd in because they're paying for tickets and that's good. Um, but it's also about providing opportunities to diversify your audience as well. Mm. Um, so Kiara's absolutely right to say that blockbusters in Australia particularly are 
are an opportunity to see objects that you would not ordinarily be able to see in Australia that you'd have to travel overseas for. So there's always been a sort of underlying argument about blockbusters as being a kind of democratising force um, because you're reducing those barriers to access because people are not having to go to the Louvre or the Met or whatever. Yeah, travel halfway around the world to, to exactly. see things. And yeah. there's lots of lovely quotes by museum directors, you know, through the decade saying, you know, this is the first opportunity to see these objects in our own backyard. Mm. Um, and that's really important in terms of um, facilitating that access. So the educational, the access kind of angles are quite important. Um, But because it's also objects that are beyond the scope of our collection, um, there's also that opportunity to diversify your audience. So if you're not interested in whatever's represented in our collection, here's something different that you might be interested in. And of course, it comes with the the clout, with the reputation of that international organisation you know, be it the Louvre or the Met or whatever museum it is. And and that then feeds into that capacity building that Chiara was talking about with internal staff. Um, So, yeah, I think that's probably Hmm. some of the key ones. One of the points you raised, Chiara, was... um you can't guarantee an audience. Can can a blockbuster be a blockbuster from the outset, and then <laughs> and then is it still a blockbuster if it doesn't get the audience, or is do we only determine what a blockbuster exhibition is <laughs> after the fact, uh, like if it's a you know quote unquote success? Yeah. So there, there's a couple of ways to think about that. Normally, we determine after the fact, right? When you have the the numbers, and okay. then you then you have your press release that says we've had this fabulous crowd. It's been a it's been a wonderful success. But institute, there are bankable characteristics. I think is the is the thing, and that you know, in the main, I think it's really important to think we're just talking about big institutions with big spaces, temporary exhibition spaces. But you know, the three kind of I think there were three key areas we really pulled apart was your heroes of Western art, so Monet, mm. literally the, the phrase that we found again and again is show, show us the, the money. money. <laughs> <laughs> um, Very punny. Well yeah, done, yeah, we, we had a lot of puns in a lot of our <laughs> research that we found, which was great fun. But um, So those sort of heroes of Western art are really important. The other ones is dinosaurs. Ah, okay. Okay, because we're we're looking at across institutions, not just art galleries, yep. but thinking about natural sciences and and definitely dinosaurs are winners. Yep. Um, and the third of those is kind of ancient cultures. Okay. Um, so Tutankhamun is the the standout or the terracotta warriors. There's a kind of fourth one that's mm. developed in recent days or in recent years, um, which is really to do with popular culture and fashion. And fashion, and that oh. they they have been um, really successful. Um, places like Bendigo are really great examples of using um, popular culture and fashion to mm. um, to get new audiences into galleries, to raise your profile, to develop new relationships. Um, and, you know, the, the NGVs had a really wonderful series of fashion shows yeah, and yeah. has got some good ones coming up. And, you know, the, the Queensland as well. So the, the popular culture, I think, is a really interesting space where it's effectively heroes of Contemporary, mm. so Jean-Paul Gaultier, um, Christian Dior, David Bowie, um, <coughs> DreamWorks, um, and you—it's it's, really—it's quite intriguing that way that um, the cinema term from the blockbuster in the cinema, and now we have blockbusters that are about cinema. Mm. Hey, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so if you're if you're in kind of one of those three slash four areas, mm. you're almost guaranteed. To be a blockbuster, <laughs> I think, or are the, there failures? That was my second question. Yeah, absolutely, there are failures. I think one of the key 
theorists, I suppose, who's constantly referenced is Albert Elson, who was a, an art historian in the 80s who talked about blockbuster exhibitions. And he said there are sort of three factors. So one, th- well, firstly, that blockbuster is an aspirational term. You hope it's going to do well. You hope it's mm. going to be a blockbuster. Um, but you have to actually invest in it you know, knowing that it will be a blockbuster. So it's about the marketing and the programming that you put alongside it um, that actually all work to make it a blockbuster, to make it a success. So in terms of the factors, he says it's um, it has to be um, a loan-based exhibition and in relation to that, it's therefore a temporary exhibition. Yeah. Mm. So that's why it's your must-see. Yeah. Once in a lifetime. Exclusive. exclusive. Exclusive, exactly. All of those terms that we see associated with the marketing of blockbusters um, and that it all, obviously then it has to draw the crowds, it has to build on that. There have been some spectacular failures. Um, the El Dorado, mm. Colombian Gold, was one that was... Um, that was not a financial success um, and you know when when we say failure I think that's a really problematic term because yeah, sure. the people who went to the exhibition I'm sure um, mm. had a really great cultural experience and it was um, I think a an interesting exhibition in and of itself um, but it's a really good one that demonstrates the challenge of mounting exhibitions in Australia um, because of the distances involved so when Kiara was talking about what allowed blockbusters to come to such prevalence in Australia and one of the things was air conditioning. The other nerdy fact that we got excited about was indemnity and insurance and the cost of freight. So El Dorado is a really good example where it was brought out um, by uh, an exhibition management agency um, and it had a requirement to tour to a number of venues and one of them they'd, they'd committed to touring to Perth so it was on had I think two east coast venues and then they sent it off to Perth and it cost them more to send the exhibition furniture to Perth than they were able to recoup in ticket costs mm. um, so the that country, just gives you a yeah. sense yeah. exactly of the the actual cost of staging these exhibitions which you really only find very scant evidence about right. um, when when exhibitions do uh, or fail to make a profit yeah. um, that detail is often hidden in data mm. and I suppose if if there are kind of multiple goals that each mm. that exhibitions mm. are trying to set out. As you say, there still might have been a really rich cultural experience mm. on, on the part of yeah. the audience. The staff exchange or the mm. staff kind of sharing of knowledge might have still been really, really rich and engaging and and uh, a, a great experience. But in terms of fina- like in financial terms, it didn't do as well as yeah. was expected. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. So, about five years ago, in 2014, the New South Wales government announced a large funding scheme for the Australian Museum, $7.2 million, which is a really significant amount of money for a government to be investing in a cultural institution like a museum. Anna and Chiara, at the time, wrote a piece in the conversation about this investment. And so, if we kind of approach this as a little bit of a case study, um, can, can you guys talk a little bit about how an investment like this has shaped how the Australian Museum has functioned in the last few years? Well, I think the 
the first obvious thing to mention is that <clears throat> the initial phase of the funding gave them money to make the front en- entrance accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really fabulous thing. And, uh, you know, as with many of our cultural institutions, they're often quite challenged with working in historical buildings that have been upgraded, you know, in a piecemeal fashion over a number of years. And so... You know, I think there was a quite a desperate need for the Australian Museum to improve some of those, um, to hit some of those benchmarks around accessibility. On the flip side, creating the new entrance hall also gives them a venue that they can hire out, um, and that's a stream of income. And you know, we need to think about it in terms of the um, the current operational context for our cultural institutions. Self-generated income is really important. Mm. Um, so. That was a really, I guess, a a clever way of both solving an access problem, making the institution more accessible, but also considering how they might be a little bit more sustainable into the future. I guess the the thing that is now on everybody's radar is that the creation of the new temporary space and, of course, the creation of the new temporary space that's going to open with a Tutankhamun exhibition, um, which, you know, we've we've kind of <clears throat> identified, as Kara said earlier, as one of these really um, quintessential subject matters for blockbuster exhibitions. Mm-hmm. Um, like already I'm like, oh, OK, like write that down in my diary kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not... Whilst some of the objects might be the first time that they've visited Australia, and certainly that'll be the way that it'll be marketed, you know, ancient Egypt has been a perennial subject for blockbuster exhibitions. So I think, you know, in terms of the originality of that show, we probably we we will wait to see the originality. Mm. I think you know that, um, and that's the challenge when you've got mm. these kind of. Um, they're not generic, but you've got these concepts that work really well. Everyone, you know, Tutankhamun has this wonderful story with the discovery and the the kind of excitement and mm. the myths around it. Um, and so it's an incredibly attractive kind of offering. It's also so embedded in popular culture mm. that I think it's, you know, that little kids know about Tutankhamun from really early on. Um, and so I think that, you know, that that's part of it. The, the thing that's really important to think about and, and it's a second tranche of money that's come to the Australian Museum that's kind of facilitating this read this mm. second redevelopment which is why it's closed at the moment and it'll reopen next year in the middle of the year um, and I think the thing that's really important to think about that is that it was one of the smaller cultural institutions in mm. terms of its footprint um, so that the Australian Museum is very constrained by that sort of network of buildings on the site and this is actually expanding their footprint they're removing um, some of the they've removed some of the displays, they've removed some of the collection storage, that's all off-site now, and this is really reinventing the sort of experience we can see at the Australian Museum. It was literally the smallest um, footprint for our cultural mm. institution and nationally, you know, for, of that ilk. Mm. Um, and I think that's really important to think about because that really constrains the sort of offerings they can even contemplate taking. Mm. So that this is giving them the capacity to take something like Tutankhamun, which of course is is something that the Melbourne Museum did um, about uh, seven years ago, maybe. 2011. And 2000, you know, massively successful exhibition for the Melbourne Museum. You know, another thing that you Anna and I get these the weird little things that we get quite obsessed about but you know the thing that's really important to think about something like Tutankhamun you can have on for a longer period of time 
because it's not about conservation of those objects. Um, right. So that natural history museums are actually got the potential. I think the Tutankhamun show, which was a record breaker in terms of attendance for Australian audiences, mm. um, was on for something like six months, mm. which, you know, is up against something like an art gallery <coughs> show, which might be for three months um, with minimal changes. Um, and, I, you know, that they're obviously very confident about this show, as they should be, and really excited about the opportunity. It's a great kind of opportunity to reposition the Australian Museum. Um, and you know, I know that they've been looking at the, the stats for the show's success in Paris. Mm. Um, so it's just closed in Paris not so long ago, and it had something like 1.42 million visitors. And I, I think the other thing that we really should stress is that Australia kicks above its weight in terms of attendance at a lot of these shows. Okay. okay so that when you look at our numbers, and you compare them to shows in in the US, which have much greater populations, um, we're doing really well. Mm. Do you think that has something to do with our isolation um, mm. and that, you know, something comes over, we've got to jump at the chance to do it? Because, again, accessibility, otherwise we would mm. have to travel a lot and, and potentially longer than anybody else in the world to get to view Absolutely. these kinds of things. Mm. Absolutely. I think it's... It's been embedded in our psyche since those very early exhibitions that, you know, whenever something comes out, that, that it is this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, this must-see event. Um, we, we talked about the, um, the tyranny of distance mm. in the book and that idea that, you know, fr- from the very beginning we've been, uh, you know, positioned in a way that consuming something from elsewhere has been a preference you know Mm. that idea of the motherland originally Mm. um, was such a big draw to come and see you know objects from the um the salon or you know from the british society of artists or something like that Um, so there's always been that that allure of seeing something international so definitely i think that's that's embedded in our psyche both you know generally but also has been manipulated in the way that these exhibitions are marketed Mm. so we're kind of playing that up as well yeah yeah sure so then it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy yeah absolutely yeah because you know our australians travel much more now Mm. than they did historically um, and so they do have greater access and I think, you know, they go to shows overseas um, and so there's also much more competition and that's pushing up what yeah. Australian organisations do in terms of how they style their shows. And so the Australian Museum, uh, you know, the last big exhibition they had was The Whales, which was the touring show from Te Papa and that was a beautiful show. It was really a, a, a magical show. It had really fabulous content in it but they don't have the physical space, mm. you know, in that the space that they had, it was really compressed and you can just, um, you know, I think the extension that this is going to offer them literally more floor space to have bigger crowds mm. but also give these objects space and set them up with the, the kind of drama that they maybe need. Yeah, that's really... That kind of brings me on to my next question. Um, what's what's really clear in, in our conversation is, you know, $7.2 million dollars it seems like it's not necessarily about that will give us the money to directly bring in new, new, more exciting content, but will change the physical space that will then allow us yeah. to bring in content to fill the space and to bring in blockbuster exhibitions. Um, so actually the physical space of the museum mm. is crucial to the cultural work that it's doing. Absolutely. And I think that this... Um this renovation is about making the Australian Museum more competitive. Um, And it's interesting to look back at the history of the Australian Museum. 
in the 1980s, particularly coming up to the bicentenary, um, one of the arguments that was being made by the then director was that they needed to upgrade their exhibition spaces Mm. in order to be competitive in the bicentenary year. Mm. Because up until that point, certainly prior to the 80s, um, it was really art galleries that were dominating the blockbuster field mm. and that were getting the, the reward, both the kind of reputation but also the financial reward of these visitors coming in. Um, and so in leading up to the 80s, there was a big push for the museums to actually start to take on some of that, um, that area. And so that's where we see the dinosaurs exhibition. Yeah. Um, which was at the Australian Museum and the Museum Victoria, which was in partnership with some Chinese institutions. And that was a huge success for them. And that was their first foray into a kind of blockbuster mode of exhibition that was really obviously presented in that way. So I think the the new expansion is part of that kind of competitive um, field, mm. making them making them yeah, more competitive. I think the other thing it's worth kind of uh, drawing out on Anna's point, the um, that Chinese exhibition was uh, the Chinese dinosaurs was actually used by both institutions to argue for more funding ah, and okay. to argue for more spaces and more physical access. There's a wonderful report that the um, museum does in Victoria, which goes through everything and sort of looks at well, actually one of the things we need is we need bigger spaces. We need to invest more in the education. We need to think more about our label writing, and you know, ticketing, ticketing um, you know, all the practicalities. And um, the Australian Museum director, similarly in, in the annual report from that year, is really quite, you know, strategic in, in mm. making a case to government that, look, we've proved our ability to do this. We were stretched to the limit by this experience, but look at what we can achieve. And in the book, we reproduce a really um, charming photograph of the queues going right round the building. And that is the the typical image. It's the of blockbusters, the, the crowds. And, you know, Anna and I kind of had a a, a bit of a battle between one another to see who could find the next one. Like it was just, <laughs> <laughs> what can we tiff up in the archives? And I think that the way that you um, institutions have been able to use it kind of as a, whether it's chicken or egg, um, mm. you know, the, you keep arguing for that because you demonstrate that there's that capacity. Um, and, you know, that one of the reasons we were so interested in the writing the book is that for most Australians or for a huge percentage of Australians, blockbusters are some of their most memorable experiences yeah, sure. of cultural um, objects and cultural life mm. um, and so they're really important for people you know the, you go to people's houses and you see all the catalogues mm. um, from exhibitions of where they've gone or the postcards on the fridge or the tote bag or whatever and I think that's that's a really important reason where we're keen to do the book and kind of look into this as a as a space mm. for research. What I found really interesting kind of looking at the case study of the Australian Museum was that in the mid-2010s, again, around the time that you're writing this article in the conversation following the funding, the museum was generating more than 30 36% of its own budget through ticket sales and various functions in different areas of the museum. How does the concept of the blockbuster exhibition work in that fo- in that context, like the need to generate some kind of revenue, does that influence the choices that museums make in terms of what they show? Of course. Yeah? Um, I think that's, that's an ongoing debate in the cultural sector. If, if there's such a strong drive for um, economic sustainability and for mm. self-sufficiency, um, then, of course, that means that you're going to invest in exhibitions that you at least hope are going to be broadly appealing, mm. are going to attract a, a, a big audience. 
Um, and that, that means perhaps some of the more risky shows are going to be difficult to argue for. Yeah, uh, but it's probably it's probably worth stressing also that there's also the argument that the blockbuster allows you to draw those big numbers. That that kind of allows you to support some of your other activities. So you know that some of the examples that Anna and I were that really um, encouraged to see were the the kind of where there is still that marriage between research and the blockbuster, and you use the blockbuster almost like a Trojan horse. So that we haven't done this collection research, so let's use it to, to do that. Um, but I think just in the, the sort of economic terms for a cultural institution having that confidence and being able to market to a wide audience through the blockbuster is actually really important in the long term for sort of your brand recognition and that people might come for that. And the idea is that they have such a good experience that they will come back for other shows and that, you know, they might sign up for your email list, they might become members, you then form a relationship with them over a time. So the, the blockbuster it sort of grabs all the headlines, but sometimes it allows other institutions to do other things. Yeah, and so it might enable you to do a smaller, quote-unquote, yeah. smaller exhibition, but one that tells the story of something or somebody or some community that might not be considered a blockbuster, but is mm. equally important. Yeah, yeah and, I, sure. and I think um, you know the, a great example of the kind of lead that blockbusters have had for sustainability and funding is somewhere like Acme in mm-hmm. Melbourne. Yep. Um, so um, they have done a fantastic job in using that investment from the Victorian Tourism Body and the Major Events Corporation. So through the Melbourne Winter Masterpiece, they developed the DreamWorks exhibition and they also developed Game Masters and um, Alice in Wonderland. Um, and those three shows, they, they tested and trialled on local audiences. They were great successes mm-hmm. to local audiences. Um, Game Masters is currently on in Canberra at the National Archives after an international tour. It's almost 10 years old, yeah, I think. I it's, it's, you know, it's... it's had some legs um, and um, the DreamWorks exhibition is also similarly in Canberra where it's at the National Museum of Australia after having a phenomenally successful um, tour going throughout the world um, and Alice in Wonderland the last time I saw it was in Singapore and that they're like one of the things that we were looking at is you know we're not just consumers of these shows in Australia we are actually becoming really quite formidable exporters of these shows and that's really developing institutional skills, um, uh, confidence, but also showing that there is quite a lot of expertise in Mm. Australia. Like, uh, I don't think anyone but Australians can pack content in a container for shipping Mm. (laughs) as well as we can. Um, it's, it's really it's really practical stuff, but it, actually understanding how you can compress this to make it a really suitable travelling show, I think Australians are very good at. Sometimes the show will fall over, as with the Eldorado, uniquely because of the, the kind of cases that were designed and the expense of travelling them. So um, I think that it is really interesting to kind of think about the broader gains that sit around these. And the institutions like ACME, the Australian Museums, also touring shows, um, the Sydney Living Museum. Um, who aren't normally one we'd think about competing in the blockbuster space are similarly touring their shows there. Um, Lego Towers Towers of of Tomorrow Tomorrow. um, has gone internationally. Um, And those things I think are really interesting to kind of investigate and unpack because they have... a a revenue component for these institutions. Um, They have the great benefit financially can come through those Mm -hmm. projects, but also quite a lot of benefit in terms of profile, which is, you know, that's incredibly important for our institutions because it is a global 
business now, cultural mm. brand. Um, you know, the V&A has a massive touring arm. The British Museum has a massive touring arm. It's quite rare where we don't have product from either of those institutions in this part of the globe. Yeah, um, and so to make the, the, the institute itself a destination, mm. w- no matter what yeah. exhibition is, is showing, you know, if I'm going to come to Sydney or I'm going to come to Melbourne... Um, then I want to make sure that I hit those museums off my yeah. list. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Kind of to wrap it up, where do you see the exhibition, the Blockbuster exhibition going in the future? What's the future? <clears throat> I guess the, the two things we identified in the book, um, firstly, was that we've moved toward, or we've moved away from a kind of multi-venue um, operation in Australia where previously exhibitions when they came to Australia if they were indemnified by the government they had to tour to more than one venue mm. and so that fulfills all of those arguments around education access etc um, so we've moved away from that model to a single destination exclusive event so the competition is uh, much more elaborate than it has been in the past and one then argues, well, what does that mean for this idea of education and, and accessibility? They are becoming exclusive events and the ticket prices, I guess, are reflective of that. $20, $25 on top of your, you've got to travel to Melbourne to see this or you've mm. got to travel to Brisbane to see this. Um, so there's that competitive turn. And the second is what Kiara was just talking about in terms of Australian ex- um, institutions generating these exhibitions and sending them off internationally. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a really ripe area for our institutions to, as Kiara said, gain some of that reputation, but also establish their profile, but they're also gaining um, quantitative data. So if you're sending your exhibition around the world, you're getting visitors from all of those international stops as well. Um, And that plays into this argument around then being able to go back to your funders and say, well, look, our exhibitions reached X million of people this year success begets success yeah please invest in our institution so i think some really interesting ways that that our museums are trying to creatively work with the blockbuster format to shore up some of those financial Mm. sustainability issues um, are really interesting areas that are evolving Mm. and i I think the other thing is that you've also got um it's moving outside the cities Mm. so bendigo yeah um, is, is very much at the fore of this but other institutions in regional Australia are looking at this and this is a really, it's being used by local governments as a way to enhance tourism and thinking about the role of culture as that driver to um, sustain communities um, sustain business but also um, raise the profile of a particular area and make it a more marketable city, not necessarily for one-off visitors, but for people to actually move there mm. in that sort of decentralised model. There's a there's a couple of um, regional centres that are really using these as, as new ways to, to get that leverage going. Okay, we're now at the part of the show where we talk about we explore what's going on in this wonderful city of ours, what's happening in this glam sector. Kiara, Anna, do you have anything that you're excited to to go and see in, in the next few weeks? I'm super excited to go and see the Cornelia Parker exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art. I think the spaces just look amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, uh, I, I mean, I love the idea of... of, of turning those everyday objects 
into uh, you know changing our perspective on those everyday objects and making visitors see these objects as something beautiful and you know worthy of being in an art museum even if they're just the leftover scraps from a kind of everyday existence so I think I'm, I'm really excited to go and see that show. Okay then Kiara. Oh, I still haven't caught the Jenny Key and um, exhibition on at the Powerhouse so yep. I'm keen to go and see that one because similarly I think they've done an amazing job on setting up the spaces and my students when they talk to me about that show have been really excited and the other one of course is Supernatural oh um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah sure. which opened this week and um, again we've had a really wonderful insight through the teaching where mm. we've been going through the conservation labs with some of our students and um, talking to the conservators about looking on the, looking after those works and preparing them for display and so I'm really keen to see how the art gallery is thinking about that um, long history of um, Japanese art and thinking about putting investigating some of these themes and I think it'll be good fun as good well. Fun. Yeah, 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 nice adventure. Fantastic. Well, that might uh, bring us to the close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com and you can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at glamcity at 2SER.com Sincere thanks to Anna and to Kiara for being uh, my guests today. It was lovely to chat to you both. 2SER stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>